to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka. I'm here at Professor Akil Amar's home today. Hi, Akil. Hey, Andy. <laughs> Welcome. Yes, and I came all the way up here, and we're uh, both in your home, but we can't record in the same room because of the, uh, the technical vagaries, but uh, that's okay. So uh, this week, we're, uh, we're late, um, but it's for good reason, and we explained actually ahead of time that we were likely to be a little bit late, and it was for really two reasons. One was because we had an Everest Scholar program in Florida, and we'll talk a little bit about that. It was very successful, but we'll talk some more about it. And the other is that you and your team were finishing up a brief for the United States Supreme Court. So is it done? It is. It's filed. Okay. So we're going to talk about that today. And of course, I, I hope, audience, that you'll consider that it was, that it was worth the wait. And um, by the way, by filed, here's one thing that I do mean. Um, uh, right now, and we're, of course, it, Andy, we're going to have to record the episode, and then you're going to have to edit it and upload it. Um, but you and I are speaking on Thursday, a little bit afternoon. Uh, it was filed Thursday morning, but our audience can read it because the Supreme Court is transparent, much more transparent than it used to be in various respects. And in this respect, people can go onto the Supreme Court website, just put in the word Trump in a certain search bar. You will find a whole bunch of amicus briefs. One of them is amicus brief of Akhil Reed Amar and Vikram David Amar submitted. You click on the main document and you've got, Andy, uh, what the Supreme Court has and what we have and what everyone in the world has, which is the, the brief that you can read, and we hope you do read it, um, at your convenience. And the Supreme Court has done you a favor by limiting the word count. So <laughs> It forced to be- me to come to the point, and our audience is saying, thank you. Andy, can you do something similar? Let me also give a shout out to our friends at SCOTUS Blog, because I'm sure that they have the same kind of uh, technical uh, capacity to access the briefs. I, I gave it to you just directly from the Supreme Court website, in part because I wanted to make sure that the official Supreme Court, the clerk's office, had indeed received the thing, and uh, they have. Yeah, so it's exciting. I mean, actually, even though you've written an over 100 law review articles and large number of books, it, you haven't written a large number of briefs. No, so. this is a new thing, and Andy, it's not a coincidence that this new thing basically corresponds with the timing of this podcast. Uh, three years ago, Andy, you suggested that we do a podcast together, and you will remember that I said, what's a podcast? Yes. I'm still not entirely sure what's a podcast. Uh, lo, these three years later, a hundred and 60 or so episodes later, and it's weekly, so you can do the math. That's that's three years and a touch. Part of the idea of the podcast was to try to go beyond books, beyond articles for uh, law professors, even books for a general audience, to media that would be even perhaps more accessible, short form for, yes, 
audience, an hour and a half of Akil in a bloviating is still short form compared to, you know, hundreds of pages in a book of Akil bloviating. But if we're going to try to talk about things, especially in the news, in all three branches in this podcast, and, and we do that all the time, and if we're going to directly engage ideas of other scholars um, in on real-time events, and we try to do that in the podcast, you said, well, Akil, you should start trying to make some of these ideas directly available to the Supreme Court um, in real time, rather than you know complaining to me afterwards about the Supreme Court getting this one wrong or that one wrong. And our audience yeah. will remember that I think our third podcast episode, I was critiquing uh, a recent case by the Supreme Court. And maybe offline, Andy may have said, well, why are you just waiting you know, for them to come up with a ruling and then critique? You know, why aren't you actually trying to help them in advance by, by giving them some, some guidance? And I thought about it and thought, well, Andy's right. No, it does require a little bit of work. I've co-authored three briefs now in the last couple of years um, with Vic Amar. One of the briefs, um, we had a, a third participant, uh, Steve Calabresi, in Moore versus Harper, but not for the other two. Um, in fact, in Moore versus United States, our friend Steve was filed a brief on the other side, basically. But but Andy, the, the timing of Akil as a brief writer coincides with the timing of Akil as um, Andy's podcast partner. Yeah, well, it has to do with the uh, amount of complaining that you that you would make that I would that I would hear and try to try to come up with. So it's true, and you're nice. Thank you. I do have a substantial body of work and oeuvre, but I also have incomparable access to America's best and brightest youngsters, um, and um, it's been really fun working with them. And you also have access to one of America's best brothers. <laughs> that is true. And you know, Vic, of course, is the is the co-author. Actually, he he's the lead attorney on the brief. Uh, he's a member of the Supreme Court bar, so he has counsel to of first. record. Yes. He's counsel of record. Yes, mm -hmm. right. Okay. So before we get into the brief, just a moment to talk about um, the Ever Scholar program. So our audience knows that we were we've been teasing for a long time the uh, reverberations of the Revolution course that uh, we were going to hold, and we held it uh, in Florida, in Boca Raton, so that wasn't too rough, um, especially now as I sit here and it's 15 degrees outside in Guilford, Connecticut. So originally the plan was that uh, it was going to be Akil and also Professor Gordon Wood uh, from Brown and Professor Paul Grimstad from Yale, uh, and that's what it was, except that uh, Gordon, for personal reasons, couldn't make it at the last minute. He did zoom in to one of the classes, which was great. And Professor Stephen Smith from, from Yale pinched it in a heroic fashion on last minute. And as it turned out, we had read one of Stephen's books for the course. So, you know, actually, it wasn't awkward or anything like that at all. And it was, it was really spectacular. And in this course, we had at least 11 people uh, that came to us directly from the podcast. So that was great. And uh, out of 22 students. And I think that, uh, you know, they, the feedback has been spectacular. So really happy about it. And uh, we have another course coming up in March, March 21st to 24th at the Yale Law School, which we've mentioned. And of course, that course filled again with tons of people from the podcast. Now, we've mentioned that you can still sign up for the wait list for that course at everscholar.org. And over the last couple of weeks, a couple of people did sign up for the wait list. And actually, one of them was offered a spot and took it. 
So it's not, you're not signing up in vain uh, for the wait list. And also, if we should offer a third section down the road, you'll have the you know, priority uh, if you sign up for the wait list now. So I encourage you to do that. It doesn't cost anything to sign up, so why not? Okay, so let's get to the brief. I'd like to talk a little bit first about how you structured the brief. Um, you know, this is, we've, we've had now, what, seven podcasts on the Section 3 matter? So, and you have 8,000 words. So in, in you know, these seven episodes, we've come up against tons and tons of different issues, things that range from, you know, is the, which our audience is sick of, is the president an officer, um, to questions about is this an insurrection, what about uh, self-execution, what about uh, appo- the appointments clause, what about the impeachment clause, you know, many, many different issues. So how do you tackle them all in 8,000 words, or do you? I actually thought about the brief kind of in two ways. One, what's the big idea? What's the big picture? And related to that, is there a story, a narrative that pulls things together, big picture, that that really gives you a, a focus on the case? And ideally, I wanted my narrative not to be um, reactive, a kind of counterpunch narrative, but here's actually our affirmative story. Since I'm an originalist, I wanted to connect the facts of Donald Trump in and around January 6th to something that actually was the backstory of the 14th Amendment, Section 3. So I have recent events, uh, Donald Trump's actions. I've got a constitutional text, 14th Amendment, Section 3. And as an originalist and historian, I know some of the facts behind 14th Amendment, Section 3. And I want to pull all of that together, the facts behind 14th Amendment, Section 3, and the text of 14th Amendment, Section 3, and Donald Trump's actions and inactions in and around January 6th. So one part of the, the brief was kind of somewhat actually truthfully novelistic, not so different than the book, The Words That Made Us, somewhat character-driven, introducing the readers, the the nine justices and and their law clerks, to a story that I actually think is a true story. It's his story, history, of a sort, Andy, that is not so different than some of the things that you'll find in especially the most recent book, The Words That Made Us, like when we tell the the story of the Hilton case. Um, and, and, Mm -hmm. and And not just the Hilton case, but Alexander Hamilton and the Hilton case, you know, as in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So I have an episode and some characters, and, and because I'm not merely a novelist, I'm, I'm actually not a novelist at all, but I try to connect that to the text of the relevant constitutional provision, 14.3, and then, unlike an historian, I'm going to say, and here's what that means today for lawyers and judges who have to decide judgment for plaintiff, judgment for defendant. So that's one part of the brief. And then the second part of the brief, you, you could break the brief up into even more sections, but second part was because there are actually lots of legal issues, not just one or two. Now the story that I'm telling, the big picture story, actually has implications for what I think are several of the biggest questions in the case. And this doesn't always happen. Life doesn't always, you know, hand you on a silver platter, something that, that where it all lines up so so nicely. But frankly, I thought my story did have profound and maybe almost decisive implications for some, not all, but some of the biggest issues in the case. Oh, but they're more than just 
you know, those three or four big ones. So the, the, the second part of the brief, we just called it uh, 20 questions, <laughs> um, as in the childhood game, 20 questions. The inspiration for that was precisely because well, we only have 8,000 words to tee up what we think are the key questions very crisply, you know, in t- five or 10 words or less. Okay. And then what's our punchy answer to that point, 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 which we thought would be very useful for a clerk trying to figure out what, like, what the biggest and best answer is on each point or for a justice. And there are other briefs that are enti- entirely devoted, 8,000 words on just one of these questions or just two of these 20. But we've teed, we wanted to give a kind of one-stop shopping to the justices and their clerks. 20 questions and quick answers, punchy answers, compelling, we hope, answers to each one of us. The inspiration for that, Andy, was um, actually when I was a kid, I used to read this um, kind of comic book, Mad Magazine. And, mm-hmm. one, um, and one of the features was snappy answers to stupid questions. Now, the snappy answers had a lot of sarcasm in them, and we, we did try to avoid that. But the idea of a snappy answer is helpful. The model for that, if the model for the first one was maybe a novel of a certain sort, the model for the second one actually is oral argument, where you actually are going to get asked a very precise question by Justice Samuel Alito or Justice Sonia Sotomayor or Chief Justice John Roberts or whomever. You're going to get asked a very crisp question often. And if you're really good and you're really prepared, you're going to have your bam, bam, bam answer. to just You're waiting for that. If you're really prepared, you say, ah, that is an 87-mile-an-hour fastball right down the center of the plate. If I can't actually you know, handle this one, I don't belong in the big leagues. And you're, you're waiting for that. And when you get that, if you're a talented oral advocate, you hit it out of the park because you've prepared just for that pitch. And I tried to do that 20 times. Vic and I tried to do that 20 times. And of course, we, you know, wrote, you wrote a, a brief in the Moore versus Harper case, and in that brief also, you used a uh, kind of a frequently asked questions FAQ, twenty questions, although I think it was ten questions or something. Ten, like that, yeah, in that yeah, one. because there um, were actually fewer issues in, in certain ways in Moore versus Harper. This one, there's so many things going on in the case. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Well, why don't we get to the brief then? So first of all, you know, on, just on the cover of the brief, uh, there's already something which is interesting, which is that it says that it's a uh, uh, amicus curiae brief of Akil Reed Amar and Vikram David Amar in support of neither party. So you could, I guess, file a brief in support of petitioner, which is Trump, or in support of respondents, which are Norma Anderson et al., but you didn't do that. You you filed this in support of neither party. Can you explain that in the context of this brief? Yes, we're definitely not for Trump. We're against him on many issues. Although there are some that we may have some agreement on. We actually think that there is a role for Congress on Judgment Day when the Electoral College ballots are unsealed. That's not completely different than some things that some Trump attorneys have said at some point. Some of them are saying because of that, no one else can get involved, and that's not true at all. The fact that Congress has a role does not, emphatically does not mean that other entities like state trial judges, state Supreme Court justices, state election officials have no role. 
Um, and by the way, Andy, we might want to at some point talk about the fact that there have been recent developments in Maine, the state of Maine, in that regard. But we're not for Trump, even though on some issues it's possible we have some overlap. But but bottom line, we we definitely couldn't, you know, the straight face say this is an amicus brief in support of petitioners. Now, why then do, are we not go all the way and say, well, this is an amicus brief plainly in support of the respondents and in, in support of the Colorado Supreme Court? And one of the reasons is this case is under a, an expedited briefing schedule, really accelerated because the court wants to dis, uh, hear the case, an oral argument in just a few weeks. And ideally, they're hoping, I think they can decide it in plenty of time for uh, the primary season to uh, continue to unfold and, and the general election after that. So they, they want to actually tell us what the rules are well in advance. So, so they had an expedited briefing schedule. And concretely, what that means is actually the respondents in the case have yet to file their, their main brief. And I thought, gee, it's a little cheeky, you know, a little, maybe a little unscholarly of a certain sort for, for us to say we're, we're in support of respondents when we haven't seen the respondents' argument yet. It's not in their brief. So I, I thought out of an abundance of caution, we should, we should file in support of uh, neither party. That meant concretely, Andy, that we had to get the brief in on January 18th, today, as we record mm-hmm. this episode. If it had been in support of respondents, we had all the way until January 31st. And, oh, that would have made my life and Vic's life, oh, and yours too, because you, you, you were such a huge help, and our friend Chris Duggan and, and the, the research team, it would have well, been a lot easier. Let's not forget the fact... Let's not forget the fact that I had to deal with you while you were uh, getting this brief ready <laughs> under this expedited schedule. Right back at you, my friend. Okay, but we, we're just we'll, we'll just pass over that for just a moment. But um, but it, it put a lot of more pressure, and, and school is just starting this week too, and at, both at Yale and Columbia, where I'm an, an adjunct. So ten days ago, Andy, I did not have a keystroke on my computer screen. Maybe eleven days ago. Last Monday, um, today's Thursday. So you do the math. I emailed every you and everyone on the team saying it's Monday morning and I've got butkus. I've got nothing zilch, you know. Um, but before I got on that a plane uh, for Florida, I actually had a draft. And then the team worked it over and over and over again. Oh, and we shouldn't forget our amazing printer, Rita. So we put ourselves under a certain amount of pressure to get it out on the 18th rather than 31st. But I thought that was the more honest course of action, given that I definitely can't support and don't support Trump's position across the board. That would have been really dishonest. And I don't know exactly all the things that respondents are going to say. They haven't said them yet. Okay, so that's very interesting. Okay, so now we'll start the brief, and we start off with the interest. So the interest of amici curiae, and you Latin scholars, scholars, please pardon my my mispronunciations. You're French. Yes. <laughs> and you say the same thing that you said in the Moore versus Harper case. Nikhil Reed Amar and Vikram David Amar are constitutional scholars and historians who seek to aid this court in its efforts to practice principled constitutional decision-making and faithful originalism. Right. And this is a required section. So not only do they say it has to be under 8,000 words, they also say certain things have to be in it. Um, certain, for example, financial disclosures that none of the parties you know, paid for the brief, and, and they didn't. But 
the interest of the amicus, the amici, need to be stated. That's a requirement by the Supreme Court. We didn't want to waste a lot of words. We didn't want to spend all our time just beating our own chest. We're professor of this and dean of that and expert on the other thing. So we just thought we'll just be just very straight. We are trying to be true friends of the court and just help the court to do what the court says it wants to do, which is get it right. And in particular, get it right with real attention to the Constitution. So now we get into the summary of argument. Rather than read it word for word, in this, so we'll probably read some portions of it. But, you know, as you said, there's 20 questions later. So what issues did you choose to highlight in the summary of argument and in the argument? Vic and you and some people on the team thought, you know, I, I should have gotten to the point even quicker. We don't get to the big point until the second page. And they, th- and they thought, you know, why isn't it on the first page? And they may have been right. But we begin actually by saying, Okay, big picture, what is this case all about? Our opening paragraph, we say, it's actually when centrally about a thing called the oath. And we capitalize, oh, because 14.3 is not just about insurrectionists in general. It's about a very small subcategory, a sliver of insurrectionists who took a solemn oath to support the Constitution and then betrayed that oath. It's about oath-breaking insurrectionists. And that was a very important limiting principle in the Reconstruction to go from the millions of people who took up arms against the United States or supported those who did, and the mere thousands of of folks who um, are subset who had previously taken an oath to support the Constitution and had betrayed that oath. So we begin by telling your honors, may it please the court, the justices, this is a case about an oath and therefore very personal to each of you because you've each taken a solemn oath. And then we segue from that. And again, some of the team thought, I kill you, just you know, throat clearing, you know, get rid of all this stuff. It's it's maybe too pompous or something. But I take oath seriously. And I can tell you, knowing some of the justices personally, I do believe they take their oaths very seriously. From well, I think we- also that the that the uh, you're right that the um, framers of the 14th Amendment took the oaths very seriously. Yes. And and also, you know, you say, well, you know, they didn't disqualify millions of people. They didn't disqualify everyone that was an insurrectionist, everyone that, you know, was a arguably a traitor to the Constitution. Um, they could have, though. Yes. And there and they were those that wanted to. Many. Yes, that was, the, that was an early draft of Section 3. Now, whether they right. could have, they would have had to get it ratified, and some folks might have said, so sweeping, so draconian, right. A, dis, uh, a disfranchise, it was originally about disfranchisement, not just disqualification, you know, might be too radical for the ratifier. So we don't know, but but they very seriously considered much more sweeping alternatives. Well, and I think th- that this is an important point because they recognized that A, the democratic process of ratifying the, whatever the Fourth Amendment wound up saying was a constraint on what they were doing. So they live in a democratic society and it has to be ratified democratically. And if you propose something that you think, well, this is really the best solution, but you can't get it ratified, then that's not very helpful. You're not gonna accomplish the solution. So there's, so democracy plays into that. At the same time, they were trying to protect the democracy from the threats that they had just experienced themselves. So they're, they're weighing different factors in the interests of 
the health and continue, continued survival of their democratic society. And they're making that decision within, a de within democratic constraints. So I think these things are very important. And the oath, I think also you and I were talking about this, um, you know, that the oath itself is an important part of democracy. Um, we, th we do think that. A couple of other related points, um, and we're getting maybe a little ahead of ourselves, but later in the brief, when we actually talk about the earlier version of Section 3, we say the version that we end up with was softer in certain ways. It wasn't about disfranchisement, but mere disqualification, and only for oath-breaking insurrections, but in two other respects. Oh, and it, it softens it in a third way, provides for amnesty, democratically conferred amnesty by Congress, but in one key respect, it actually was stricter because it applies for all time, not merely. The earlier version was much more draconian in terms of its exclusion from the political process, but then it sunset. And they, th they, upon reflection, said, no, this is actually an enduring principle. This is not an amendment just in effect about the late insurrection, the recent unpleasantness. It's the one-off of the 1860s. We think we've lived through something that actually gives us insight about a possible recurring problem in a democracy, and this on balances our considered view about how our posterity should handle this issue, unless and until they choose to amend the Constitution themselves. So I open saying this is a really, oh, the opening sentence also said this may be one of the most important cases in American history. So I understand the solemnity. Of course, the justices understand that. I want them, though, to understand that I understand that as someone trying to faithfully and earnestly offer my friendly advice, as a, an, an amicus means friend. So I'm aware of this, okay? And I just want them to know that I, I get it. And I think it's all about oaths. And But I was actually saying, this is personal for you too. I, I understand that because you've taken oath. And what's the oath to? It's not to the cases. It's not even to, and this is our second paragraph, democracy as some broad free-floating principle. It's an oath to the Constitution. That's actually an originalist idea that you're taking an oath to a certain text. And the text is the text of the Constitution, not the text of the cases, row, row, row your boat. No, that's not what you've taken an oath to, is to the Constitution. And it's not to some free-floating idea of democracy, which you've already mentioned kind of points in, in both directions. You could say keeping someone off the ballot is undemocratic, and you can say, yeah, but it's also undemocratic to put in an insurrectionist who broke his oath before, and if he breaks it again, no more democracy forever going forward. Well, that would be kind of undemocratic too, wouldn't it? One person, one vote, one time, or one more time, and then nothing. And then we see... She, you didn't take your oath to democracy, and in any event, democracy points in two directions. So let's actually look at the Constitution itself, which is what you took your oath to. And Andy, what you said itself was the product of a democratic process and by people who faced the possibility of democracies being snuffed out because it almost happened. And they, they so they're thinking about democracy on both sides, and they thought about broader disqualifications or exclusions and, and narrow ones. So that's the second paragraph. Then the third paragraph says, gee, in the past, our best constitutional interpreters, both on and off the court, have actually, not always, but sometimes in, their, in the, some of their best um, interpretive moments, done a certain thing, which is try to see if there was a core episode, an event, 
a mischief, a problem that motivated a particular package of constitutional text. And then they interpreted that constitutional text in the light of the problem, the mischief, the evil, the event that gave rise to that patch of constitutional text. This is sometimes known as the paradigm case method. It's how we often think about things. If I say you know, something to you and you can say, well, why did Akhil say that? Oh, he's really, this is the thing that he's especially re, you know, responding to. There was this you know, event. And, and that's often how law works. And then we, um, after I say that generally, and I give a few examples, um, frankly, although I didn't cite them, examples of other constitutional provisions that I've written about. Oh, and some of them are about eligibility rules. Oh, why does a president have to be 35? You know, so what, you know, why can't a president be an oath-breaking insurrectionist? Well, why does a president have to be 35? Oh, I've written about that. And I can tell you. Why does a president have to be natural born? Oh, I've actually written about that. And I can tell you. What was behind the First Amendment or the freedom of the, of the press? What was behind the Fourth Amendment? What was behind congressional eligibility rules, not just a presidential eligibility rules? What was behind the, the 14th Amendment, Section 1? Here we're talking about Section 3. In all of those areas, justices and other interpreters have gone beyond text to the historical episode that generated the text. That's originalism, the episode that launched the text and the text and reading them together. And then I'm at the, we're at the bottom of page two and some people said it took you too long to get there, but these are actually small pages with, wide, with big margins. We come to a paragraph and it's in italics because now I'm actually coming to my big, fresh, our big, fresh new point. Okay, so let me read that paragraph to you. So underlying Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, there resides a similar key episode. And by key episode, you're talking about like sort of this, you know, paradigmatic examples that you mentioned. And one of them, just as which you alluded to, was that you can understand, for example, Article 1's rules for membership in Congress uh, when you understand the story of the Englishman John Wilkes, not John Wilkes Booth, but John Wilkes. And uh, as, you, as you've pointed out, John Wilkes Booth is named for John Wilkes. Okay. <laughs> or that, uh, you know, Dred Scott is repudiated by the first sentence of the 14th Amendment, and that's exactly the example that they had in mind when they wrote that. Okay. And that helps you understand these passages, these key episodes. Okay, so to go on, this key episode was an episode known to virtually all Americans in the 1860s and alas, forgotten by most Americans today, even the learned. And I have to say, parenthetically, I didn't know about it. You know, just for example, not that I'm, you know, the, the Mr. Learned, um, but I didn't know about it until, you know, until recently. Andy, I didn't know about it until I started researching the new book, the book in progress. I didn't know about it. But I think your point here, the way that you say it, um, that you say it was known to virtually all Americans in the 1860s. So yes, you don't know about it. I don't know about it. That, that or didn't. That doesn't make it obscure. Okay, no. at the time or trivial or unimportant. Right. The episode has gone almost unmentioned in all previous scholarship on Section Three, and in all previous briefing in this case. And we believe that this episode is a key that can unlock many of the issues presented by today's case. So basically that reads to me like, okay, you know, judge originalism, you know, here comes an originalist argument. Right. And we put it in italics and truthfully, 
the goal is to get the reader, whether the reader's a law clerk or justice, to keep reading, to promise. And, and it is a promise. And my name's on it and Vic's name on, on it. You're gonna, you're about to learn something that's genuinely important, genuinely relevant, maybe even decisive for the case that you don't know, probably, even though you're quite learned. Um, and it's not in other scholarship. It's not in the other briefs. Frankly, I hope I have a certain credibility with the justices having written things before, not just uh, amicus briefs, but, but books and articles that they found helpful on other issues. So I'm saying in part one of our brief, we're going to tell you this big new story that's going to put things into a different framework, a different perspective. All sorts of things will snap into focus that now seem a little hazy. Okay. And now, you know, it's a little tricky because now you want to say, okay, here's, here's a little bit about the story, but you're not actually telling the story. So this is, this is a section called the, in the summary of argument. And again, the Supreme Court's rules for a brief say, we not only want you to tell us the interests of the, the amicus, but then we want you to summarize the argument before you make it. In part one of what follows, we briefly tell the story of the first insurrection of the 1860s. And audience, you'll recall that we alluded to this in our last episode, this idea about the first insurrection. What's that, the first insurrection? I didn't know there were two insurrections. People, right. And it's capital F, capital I. That's a, mm -hmm. um, how we introduce it. The, right. first, the first insurrection, and right. then there's a second insurrection. Right. So this is the insurrection before the second insurrection of the 1860s, typically known today as the Civil War. In that first insurrection, High-level executive officials in Washington, D.C. violated their solemn constitutional oaths as part of a concerted plan not just to hand over southern forts to rebels, that's bad enough, I guess, but also, and this is in italics, but also to prevent the lawful inauguration of the duly elected Abraham Lincoln. The parallels between this insurrection in late December 1860 and January 1861 and the more recent Trump-fueled insurrection of late December 2020 and January 2021 are deeply and decisively relevant to today's case. Okay, now comes up what I think is an important parenthetical. You say, throughout this brief, we accept the factual findings of the trial court regarding these events. Our audience knows that I always thought that Bowdoin, Paulson, our friends, ideally needed to write a second article all about what Trump did and didn't do in the days up to and even after January 6th. And they didn't quite do that. They, they, they you know, covered lots of issues. Their article was 130 pages, but I said, that's what we need actually more on. You've given us all sorts of great legal analysis about what an insurrection is and isn't and how it applies against presidents and how you don't need a congressional statute before it can be implemented and how it's not just about uh, the insurrections of the 1860s, but, but all future insurrections. You've done a spectacular job of analyzing all these issues, but I want to hear more about how then Trump flunks 14.3 now that I understand your great analysis of 14.3. But now, Andy, we're in a different situation. And this brief doesn't 
do what I told you know Bode and Paulson to do. Well, you say, well, why not? You're, are you a hypocrite? You're telling them to do the work and then you don't do it in the reef? No, because the key intervening event is an adjudication in Colorado by a trial judge where both sides were allowed to be heard and present evidence. And that trial judge made very elaborate findings, findings of fact that are typically binding on appellate courts. And so the basic outline of our brief is, I'm going to tell you what the easy case was for disqualification under 14th Amendment Section 3. The easy case, the core case, easier than, wait for it, easier than Jefferson Davis disqualification, easier than Robert E. Lee's disqualification is the disqualification in the first that, that arose, that properly arose because of actions in what I'm calling the first insurrection. It's not the Civil War. It's an insurrection that was led by people in James Buchanan's cabinet who did things and who failed to do things in order to prevent a lawful transfer of presidential power. And that's what looks exactly like January 6th, what Trump did. It may not look like the Civil War, but it's exactly what happened in what I'm calling the first insurrection before Lincoln's inauguration, trying to prevent Lincoln's inauguration. And the reason that's even worse in some ways than what Jeff Davis did or Robert E. Lee did is these people are in office and using the powers of their office to actually war against the Constitution. Jefferson Davis didn't quite do that. He was a senator in 18... 60, early 1861, but he wasn't able to do much as a senator to, to prevent Lincoln's inauguration. And Robert E. Lee was just a mid-level, although you know, very impressive, military officer, and he didn't use his powers of mid-level military office to undermine the Constitution and prevent Lincoln's lawful election. And indeed, he doesn't go against the United States until Virginia secedes after Lincoln's inauguration. Oh, but these Buchanan officials, whose names I didn't know before, they were using this cabal this uh, of, of Buchananites, were using their high executive powers to prevent the lawful transfer of power. And that was the core case of 14-3. These are people equivalent of Jeff Clark and Donald Trump. And now, all I have to do to complete the argument is to show you that, yes, Donald Trump was just like these folks, but I don't need to do it in a law review article or in a brief. The trial judge already did all of that. So all you need to do is just think about the Buchanan insurrectionists in this first insurrection and just compare it to the findings of fact that the trial court has already made and the case is done. I think that it's it's important to, you know, you say it's it's the easy case. I think that it's, it's important to divide that statement into two parts. Um, one part is that the first insurrection of 1860 is the easy case for, for, for the application of 14.3. So in other right. words, that's what they had in mind that caused them to write 14.3. That's part one. You have to establish that. Alongside, then, I mean, there were, there were two insurrections, and both of them were central. Right. It's not as if Indeed, both, but, they forgot the Civil War. <laughs> no, no, I understand. Yeah. But, but but the point is that just talking about this one, that this one was what they had in mind. They may have had other things in mind too, like, this, like the Civil War, but they had this in mind. 
That's and, and it's a match. That's number one. Number two, then you show that this is like what Trump did, which is kind of very obvious when you tell that. But those are two separate things. So it's not sure. just the fact that they're similar. It's also the fact that this was what the 14.3 has in mind. It forms such a perfect fit that it's easy to lose sight of the fact that these are two different things um, that, that you're proving here. Right. And Andy, I think the next paragraph is also maybe worth talking about. The audience should know that I wrote these words before certain pundits said certain things in, in, in the press. And the classic example of a really smart pe- person saying genuinely less than smart things is Russ Douthat in the New York Times. This was a piece that he wrote after the first draft of, of this brief was done. And it, it appeared, I think, under the heading, January 6th was not an insurrection. Because he was measuring against the Civil War and saying it doesn't look anything like the Civil War. And he was building on some ideas by our friend Steve Calabresi, who was quoted and maybe even hyperlinked to, but definitely quoted by names, um, mentioned by name by Russ Douthat. And this next paragraph, which is written before Russ Douthat's piece in the New York Times, is a direct response to him. And you know, I'm, I'm trying to actually put myself into the mind, and this is, was building on our earlier podcast, why are all sorts of smart people brushing off Bowdoin Paulson? And I think in part, it's they've never heard of 14.3. But then when they do think about it, they think, oh, it's only about the Civil War, and this doesn't look anything like the Civil War itself, where more than half a million people died. That's their kind of gut instinct. And so they're then looking for ways to just you know, toss aside, uh, give the back of the hand to this thing that they think is only about a civil war. So that's the next paragraph. Andy, you, you want to read that for us, please? Yes. If one thinks, as do many journalists and noisemakers lacking historical expertise, that Section 3 was only about insurrections akin to the Civil War, then the Trump-fueled insurrection of 2020 to 2021 pales in comparison. The invocation of Section 3 looks rather cutesy, a gimmick of clever lawyers and law law professors. But if one understands, as did all the men who drafted and ratified Section 3, that before the giant insurrection that began in mid-April 1861, there was a smaller one that was also of central concern, then the matter looks entirely different. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's the point that you're and making. And now you have the theoretical apparatus, the scaffolding, the the lawyerly analysis for the first part. Now I'm going to tell a story, but now you know why it would matter. If you think that the framers of the 14th Amendment are only thinking about stuff like the Civil War, well, January 6th doesn't really look like that. But if you understand that even before Lincoln's inauguration, there was an earlier insurrection, a failed insurrection, but you know, in certain respects, but an insurrection, and that it's almost identical to what folks like Jeff Clark and Donald Trump did. Wow, that's a different, that's a different way of conceptualizing um, the facts as found by the trial court in this case. And when you hear the facts, you know, you'll be outraged, you know, at the idea that these things went on, even though 850,000 people didn't die immediately as a result of this. Okay, so here's the next paragraph. And we're not going to read the whole brief audience. No, but- not at all. And Andy, by the way, 
I think there's a footnote at a certain point. I learned about all this because I'm writing a book about America's constitutional conversation between 1840 and 1920. And I have a chapter on the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and it ends with Lincoln's election in 1860 as president. But then I have to explain, you know, what what happens thereafter. And between that and Lincoln's inauguration, there are some important things that I have to explain. Oh, these states purport to secede. And oh, Buchanan's administration is handing over the keys to the fort. And oh, they're trying to prevent the lawful inauguration of, of Abraham Lincoln. And some of this stuff I just hadn't studied with great care before, but I had to do it in a book that has to explain how you got from point A to point B to point C in America's constitutional saga. Right. That that footnote comes later in the actual argument rather than the summary of argument. Okay. So now you say, uh, and you again, you italicize this first sentence, today's facts are remarkably similar to those of the first insurrection of the 1860s. In a crucial mid-February 1868 Senate discussion about a particular officer under President James Buchanan, Senator Jacob Howard, now Jacob Howard is very important in the authorship of the 14th Amendment, passionately explained that this ex-officer should never sit in the Senate precisely because long before Fort Sumter fell, this powerful oathbreaker, one of the nation's, quote, principal public functionaries, unquote, had been part of a cabal quote, endeavoring to beleaguer the city of Washington with the design of seizing it and at all events preventing the inauguration of President Lincoln in the succeeding march, unquote. Sound familiar? Okay. It doesn't say that. I did. Okay. Yeah. Later in this key debate, which revolved around a test oath law, closely analogous to Section 3, then a few months shy of official ratification, that is, Section 3 was a few months shy of official ratification. Senator Oliver Morton likewise blasted several of Buchanan's cabinet members. These oathbreakers, Morton thundered, had abandoned their posts while pro- publicly proclaiming, and here's the quote, that secession was right and that southern states ought to be allowed to break up this union and form a new government without opposition. Those things went on until the 4th of March, 1861, when there was scarcely anything left of this government, as we all know, to protect the inauguration of President Lincoln. That's the end of the quote. So in other words, very little was was left to protect the inauguration. Yeah, and and note the language, as we all know. Wow, that's, (laughs) for my narrative purposes, that's kind of important. He's saying, like, everyone remembers this. We all know that. Mm-hmm. And that's 1868 that he's saying that, looking he's back. He's looking back, and he's saying, let's not forget what happened before Lincoln's inauguration. Okay, so now in the summary of argument, you kind of move away from the, from this now into what we've discussed previously, the 50-state solution. And now I'm introducing a kind of second big argument. You're right. The first argument is this is just like secession winter bef- before the fall of Sumter. So I'm not going to read this in, entire part because, you know, we, we hope that you'll all download the briefs and read it. And you've heard us talk about the 50-state solution. But just in yeah. brief, here's a couple of sentences. He says, as, as we explain in part two, 
The Constitution's structure enables a 50-state solution in which different states may properly have different procedures and protocols for implementing Section 3, and gives a lot of examples of different things that might happen, different standards. And then you go on to say, the, this Brandeisian 50-state solution means that this court should recognize Colorado's power to act and should opine that the facts as found permit Colorado's action under Section 3. And then you go on to talk a little bit about the role of Congress, that Congress has a role, which we've also talked about, uh, that Congress can have a role. Um, and of course, it has you know, a couple of different roles. It can have a role in the 50-state solution in that it can you know, weigh in on eligibility at the last minute, more or less. And then, of course, it also has the ability to grant uh, amnesty, although it isn't mentioned right here. Okay, and then you say that you introduce part two, basically saying that you're going to have 20 questions. Okay, and that's basically the summary of argument. And Andy, uh, what page am I? Are we on in the brief? Then uh, just um, six. Okay, so look, th these are the rules of the court, and now I understand why they have these rules. Okay, so I've basically, you know, explained the basic structure of our position in six pages. And when you understand how extraordinary it is that this court opens itself up, let's anyone file an amicus brief. Um, now, um, so you have to be a member that, of the Supreme Court bar. Okay, and that's not that high a threshold. The court is open. So when you go to the court, you know they say things like, "The court is now open." Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, draw a night and you shall be heard. Okay, you have a, you, anyone. Lots of people can file a lawsuit. They may not win. But even a powerless individual can file a lawsuit. Um, Clarence Earl Gideon. Um, well, and that was a lawsuit, yes, that he filed from prison. Now, initially, the government went after him, but now he's sitting in prison and um, filing in effect for habeas corpus or something. Yes, one person with an argument. And, and he actually, I think, wrote his cert petition out in his own hand in pen. The amicus brief option is pretty extraordinary. They, they let lots of people put their two cents in. Therefore, truthfully, the challenge is that the court has to say, yes, but, but please come to the point quickly. You know, 8,000 words all in and tell us who you are and what your dog is in the fight, if, if any, your statement of interest, you know, 8,000 words. But you start off with a summary of the argument so we know where you're heading. I basically am hoping that, there, that the clerks are gonna at least look at the first couple of pages, at least for many of the amicus briefs. Maybe not all of them. Maybe they, truthfully, they can't even go over all of them. But I'm hoping they'll say, oh, we've heard of the Mars. They've, they've written stuff before as scholars. They've written other amicus briefs. What the, are they saying here? And and we, we're trying to get their attention. We're saying in italics, it's not on page one, but on page two, keep reading and we promise you, you will learn something that you don't, you probably don't know and that's really important to this case. He'll put it in a different perspective and is in none of the other briefs we suspect. Okay, now I'm gonna just take a break for a moment here um, and for our friends who are listening to this podcast who are hoping to get continuing legal education credit through the New Jersey State Bar Association's generous offering of their resources for this purpose. So as you know, if you're in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, or New York, any of the any lawyers in those states or judges are able to get their CLE credit by going to podcast 
www.njsba.com, filling out the form and entering the code. The code this week is privilege, P-R-I-V-I-L-E-G-E. Note that there is no D in privilege. Okay. And it's not case sensitive, so that's privilege. Privilege is the code for this week. And if you're in another state, you can usually get credit through reciprocity. Check with your state bar association on that. Okay, thank you to New Jersey State Bar Association for partnering on this. All right, so now we've finished the summary of argument. You've explained the remarkable nature of the amicus system. And so now we're going to get to the argument, and which means we're going to get to the story. Oh, Andy, if I could just say one other thing about this. Our audience knows that I, I'm an admirer of courts, and here are a couple of reasons why. At the end of the day, they're going to not only rule but give reasons, and then we can critique the reasons, and that doesn't always happen in government. But at the beginning of the process, they, in theory, again, are uh, open to hear from all sorts of folks, and they're not asking in their statement of interest for example, how much money you contributed to their campaign coffers or something. And they don't have to run for re-election, you see. Yeah, maybe the senators are open and you can call your senator and, and they may actually provide a lot of constituent services, truthfully, in certain situations. But they may be much more open to big donors who can help them in their re-election campaigns and the court doesn't have to run for re-election. We do have to take legal ethics rules seriously, and we've talked judicial ethics rules, and we've talked about that in previous episodes. And I think we do need to acknowledge that there is controversy nowadays, you know, about about some of the justices in, in this regard. Sure, and, uh, and, and, and that's why that those, in previous episodes, right? We'll and and that's why again. those are those are really important issues. But in principle, you see, they're going to. I hope listen to the arguments that we've made, even though I've never contributed much money to, 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 to any of their, to, uh, their, their campaigns, so to speak, and they're not running for re-election as such. And so I like the idea that I'm making arguments and they're going to give reasons after, in between all this, they're going to actually have a back and forth oral argument in public with the lawyers on both sides. I, I like that process. Yeah, well, of course, you you would like it. Um, Let's just also acknowledge that many cases don't get to the Supreme Court that want to. They deny certain, the vast majority of cases, and and usually they don't give a reason for denying cert. So that, you don't get that. And let's also acknowledge that, like in researching this uh, brief and your book, you would read the Congressional Globe, the Congressional Record, other documents that give us access to the deliberations of Congress. There are extensive transcripts of committee hearings. Even the executive has certain processes that are open uh, in laying down regulations and things like that. So it's not like the rest of government is completely opaque. But but I, but I think- You're that, right. Uh, Any brilliant, brilliant points. In fact, let's remember that the 14th Amendment is an amendment by Congress for Congress in which Congress is specifically mentioned. And we the first sentence is a smackdown of the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott case. So points very well taken. But I am candidly a little frustrated today when I see people in Congress basically being kind of silly much of the time and just dialing for dollars and and tweeting snark and not being nearly so serious as, let's say, Charles Sumner and Jacob 
Howard and a lot moral and Oliver Morton and some of the, the, the great, great reconstruction congressmen cited in our brief were back in the day. You know, there's a fair number of, I mean, we'll, we'll move on, but there's a fair number of retirements in Congress these days. And one might speculate that some of that is frustration on the part of the members of Congress themselves, that they're not able to do the things in Congress that they want to do, that they perhaps want to debate and have, and not spend so much time fundraising, whatever, but they feel that they're confined by the system to where they have to do that. So, so Nice point. And two other points on that. We believe in 18-year term limits, mm-hmm. um, but it is interesting that not very many justices step away, truthfully. It's, it's, they, 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 <laughs> they like this gig too. David Souter, uh, very virtuous, did kind of walk away before he had to um, physically or, or mentally, way back when Arthur Goldberg stepped aside to do other public service. But, but most of them <laughs> like this gig and stay a good long time. In the early days of the Republic, because the justices had to ride circuit, that's pretty arduous. It probably was a young man's game to some degree for that reason. Good point. Okay, so now we're getting to the argument, and the argument starts with a story, not Joseph's story, but an actual story. Joseph's story we'll hear from later. The first thing we do in the argument is uh, tell the story. Okay, and I'm going to read one sentence. Almost every American school child today knows the name Benedict Arnold. But how many have heard of John B. Floyd? (laughs) (laughs) I'm hissing. It's reminiscent of uh, Purim, the Jewish holiday, when the name Mm -hmm. Haman Haman. is Haman, yes, with the noisemakers. Yes, yes. Yes, They're called groggers. Oh, groggers. Yeah, you have to to drown out the name. Okay, so John B. Floyd, that's the villain. How many goys have actually been involved, have participated in in Purim celebrations? Because I have. I I can even tell you about Sukkot. Yes, Purim, you're actually supposed to get drunk for Purim. So, surprised (laughs) it hasn't really caught on. Okay. (laughs) All right, so John B. Floyd. Okay, and you, you don't say Benedict Arnold for nothing because he was felt to be as as heinous as Benedict Arnold. Um, in, in, indeed, we quote many people making that equation literally, saying he is the Benedict Arnold of our time. And not one or two, many, many people said that. And I had never heard of John B. Floyd until doing the research for the new book. John B. Floyd was the Jeffrey Clark of... Um, the Buchanan administration. No, he's, he's much secret- worse. He's okay. much worse. Yeah. Uh, first of all, he's not. He's not just some, you know, lower level uh, Justice Department, uh, you know, functionary that's trying to assume great power. He actually had great power. He was cabinet secretary, Secretary of War. Secretary of War is what we now think of as the Secretary of Defense um, at the time then. And he served in that position for three years and eventually resigns. But what happens is, so he's a, he's a slave. Three and a half, three and three quarters. Yeah. He's a slaveholder from Virginia. And after the election, of, but before the inauguration of Lincoln, he starts to move troops around, move resources around to basically make the forts undefendable. Almost all of the important federal forts in the South, and you go you know, into a list of them. 
Fort Moultrie, Castle Pinckney, Fort Morgan, Fort Gaines, Fort Pulaski, Fort James Jack, and others, many, many forts. Okay. And so then eventually all that was left was Fort Sumter, Fort Pickens, and Fort Taylor. And now the South has And Fort Taylor, by the way, Fort Zachary Taylor is way out in the Florida Keys. It's, yeah, it's West. barely in the United yeah. States. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Right. So that So all you got is Fort Sumter in Charleston and Fort Pickens in I think this is in Pensacola. That's it. And in fact, he he even wants to move the troops away from Sumter. Yes. And Buchanan finally, you know, shows a little backbone and won't do it. And so he quits. He resigns at that point. Yes. Um, Okay. And so this is, you know, in early uh, 1861, I believe, or late 1860. Um, I think, yeah, the, the, the closing days, maybe December 29th of 1860. Yeah. And Carol, South Carolina actually, you know, as you, as you eloquently put it, purported to secede on December 20th, 18th. It's very Lincolnian, you know, that yes. you don't even grant them, you know, the word secession. Um, yes, December 20th, 1860. Okay, so, so, so this is horrible. This is, you know, basically leaving the United States defenseless in the South. Um, and that's, it, it you know, and this was not an accident. You know, th- this was by design. Okay, so that's, and now you see that in a certain respect, that's that's worse than anything Jeff Davis did, because Jeff Davis actually wasn't in operational control in late 1860. Neither was Robert E. Lee. So yeah, he's worse than Jeff Clark. Of course, then that means that his real counterpart is Donald J. Trump. Right. And so here's a quote from uh, on February 7th, 1861, from a member of Congress, Henry Winter Davis. He's saying, even at cab- even cabinet ministers have violated their oaths by organizing insurrection. All right. So after that, he then, you know, after the uh, war breaks out, he joins the uh, Confederate Army, and he, he's a brigadier general, and uh, he actually fights against Ulysses S. Grant, um, at Fort before Donaldson. he runs away, before he runs away, right? He runs away, <laughs> and he's so notorious that when they when they read in Congress uh, the news that he abandoned the, that Floyd abandoned the battlefield, the Congressional Globe, which documents you know what people say, says laughter you know came from the gallery, you know at, at the news of Floyd's uh, you know it sounds like cowardice, who knows if it actually was, but. But uh, it sounded like it, and, that's, and that was the reaction. Grant says the guy's a coward, and Grant, in his memoir, says has two amazing uh, statements, among others. And since this is novelistic, I'm introducing you to characters. So I've got my villain, my archetype villain, John B. Floyd. And then the question is, is what Donald Trump did remotely similar to Floyd's? And I say, yes, it's very similar. Okay, but I've also got my archetypical hero. This is somewhat novelistic. My hero is Ulysses S. Grant. And Ulysses S. Grant is a no BS person. He's very, very crisp in his prose. He tells you just what he thinks. And in his memoirs, here's actually what he writes about uh, the last days uh, in office um, of Floyd. And these are from Grant's memoirs. And by the way, Andy, who told me several months ago in connection with a book 
as I was telling you, oh, I found this guy Floyd. This this is before the, the amicus brief. I'm just I'm researching the book. I said, I found this really interesting character, Floyd. And Wikipedia has this quote about Floyd. Um, it's from Grant's memoirs. And and he said, Well, why don't you actually read the memoirs instead of quoting from Wikipedia? You know? And then I start reading the memoirs, um, which I hadn't read before. And oh my God, they're really they're fascinating. Here's what Grant says in his memoirs. Remember, audience. Ulysses Grant will later be not only the commanding general of the Union Army, and he starts to rise to power precisely because he whoops Floyd at Fort Donaldson. That's the first great Union victory, and that's that's what launches Grant's career. So he's thought a time or two about, about Floyd, because that's how he becomes U.S. Grant, is by beating Floyd in Fort Donaldson, which, to repeat, is the first great Union victory. It's out in the West. And then he will so later eventually become the commanding general of all Union forces and then acting secretary of war, the very position that Floyd himself held and then two-term president of the United States. But here's what he says about Floyd's basically dereliction of duty in what I've been calling the first insurrection. He denounces Floyd for having, quote, scattered the army so that much of it could be captured when hostility should commence and distribute the cannon and small arms from northern arsenals throughout the South so as to be on hand when treason wanted them. You know, great prose from Grant. Now, later, when Grant is recalling in these memoirs Fort Donaldson, what's amazing is he said, yeah, the guy was maybe a bit of a coward, but it's connected to his oath-breaking. So Grant, in these memoirs, is connecting oath-breaking and insurrection in ways that are that absolutely track section three, which connects oath-breaking and insurrections. Here's what he says about this guy whose failures at Fort Donaldson are what launches Grant's entire meteoric rise. Grant says in the memoirs that Floyd was, quote, unfitted for command for the reason that his conscience must have troubled him and made him afraid. So he's calling him a coward, you see. As Secretary of War, he had taken a solemn oath to maintain the Constitution of the United States and to uphold the same against all its enemies. He had betrayed that trust. So I'm giving you in this brief a kind of a novelistic account, not just of the text and the purpose behind the 14th Amendment, but the cast of characters. Oh, you got Floyd on one side, and you've got people like Jacob Howard, but also you've got Ulysses S. Grant. And they're talking about not merely insurrectionists, but oath-breaking insurrectionists, and, and maybe even, in Grant's view, cowards at that. Well, I think also when you think about this man that, that uh, as you say, used the power of office to aid these you know, this insurrect, the, the insurrectionists. Um, and there's more, of course, in what happens soon after that. And you think about this quote, as Secretary of War, he had taken a solemn oath to maintain the Constitution of the United States and to uphold the same against all its enemies. He had betrayed that trust. And then you listen to these arguments that the president, that this was not meant to cover the president. How absurd does that sound in the context of this kind of treason, which is uh, obviously closely echoes the the uh, actions of of uh, Donald Trump as it's, as established by the now, Colorado now, Court? Now Floyd is ends up dying in 1863, 
but he's used over and over as the Haman, as the archetype, as the Benedict Arnold, as the villain. And so, of course, he can't ever be secretary of war again, can't head up the army, uh, oversee the army uh, and the Navy. But, but somehow he can be commander in chief of everything, according to s- some folks. I-, I know that our audience is getting sick of hearing that, of course, this applies to the presidency, but of course it applies to the presidency. And some of the briefs that have been filed today, at least one of them, frankly, by a friend of mine, no, I won't mention the name, actually, Two of the briefs that have been filed in the last three days by friends of mine have taken this position that it doesn't apply to the presidency. Wow. We mentioned that there's more. What happens here, now Floyd has, leaves the administration, but the conspiracy goes on. And what you say is that the betrayals also involved, through both actions and inactions of Floyd and his allies, efforts to prevent President Link, President-elect Lincoln from lawfully assuming power at his inauguration. So um, tell us a little bit about that, please. Andy, in fact, you brought some of these events to my attention. You sent me a New York Times piece from shortly after January 6th, 2021, maybe January 14th, something like that. January 8th. January 8th, so just two days after, the New York Times ran a piece by an historian named Ted Widmer. I don't believe I've met this gentleman. He actually highlights how there was a lot of concern that anti-Lincoln plotters were hoping to prevent the proper counting of the ballots, the Electoral College ballots, and certification by Congress their equivalent of January 6th, which back then was February 13th. If there was a plot, people in Congress expressed concern about the plot. There were a few people who actually, or maybe even more than a few, there were some folks who actually congregated in D.C., but nothing came of it that day because the Capitol was properly fortified by General Winfield Scott, a Whig, precisely what did not happen on January 6th. So you see the remarkable peril. They're trying to prevent the counting of the Electoral College votes by Congress on the certification day, the exact same thing as January 6th. And it actually failed because the administration at the end of the day did the right thing and fortified the national capital and, yeah, and, not and only the capital did they, building. Not only did they uh, fortify the capital, but they didn't make the same mistake that they make in Dr. Strangelove when they when they don't announce the existence of the doomsday device. And the guy says, Well, what good is the doomsday device if nobody has knows that you have it? You know, and and uh but here General Winfield Scott is is extremely bombastic in his rhetoric leading up to February thirteenth, the day of the of the congregation of people. And, you know, I don't think we know the exact degree to which they, you know, tried to break through or whatever. But but what's clear is that they were intimidated by Scott, who says, like, at one point, a senator asked him, well, what would you do if a senator tro- tried to do this? And he said, I'd blow him to hell. You know? <laughs> He's making it very clear that they're not going to be the exact opposite of the timid under protection of the Capitol that occurred on, on January 6, 2021. And, and here's one related point, because one of the big issues is 
well, is it really giving aid and comfort to an insurrection? Is it really engaging in an insurrection when you just sit on your hands and watch? You Maybe you don't do anything. Now, in fact, the trier of fact in this case said, oh, Trump did more than nothing. He egged the crowd on. He incited them. He encouraged them. He, long even before January 6th, he's laying all sorts of plans. So he acted in all sorts of affirmative ways. And when you do unleash certain events, you sometimes have a duty to try to then stop them. You can't just watch them unfold. If you triggered them, you might have more of a duty to act if the, the events are things that you yourself precipitated. So there's that. But another point is some people ex officio have certain affirmative obligations and duties, even if they hadn't precipitated the riot, the insurrection, the misbehavior. And here's a key quote from the 1860s on just that. It's actually by the fellow who succeeds Floyd, who is loyal to his oath and to his country. And here's what this fellow says. His name is Holt. And I want these words to hang in the air for just a second. The highest And most solemn responsibility resting upon a president withdrawing from the government is to secure to his successor a peaceful inauguration. That's his highest and most solemn response. And it's very precise of an an outgoing president when you have a new one coming in. So that's relevant That's a baseline, a legal baseline, and an historical baseline, an originalist baseline against which to measure the complicated, intertwined actions and inactions, including maybe sitting on your hands and smiling as chaos erupts all around you on January 6th of Donald J. Trump, according to the facts as definitively found by the proper trier of facts in this litigation. You, you see, which Will and, and Mike couldn't rely on when they wrote their article because that hadn't happened. And I don't have to relitigate in a loyally way because I'm just taking the facts as given, which is what one ordinarily does on appeal. And just uh, Holt also is relevant. This Joseph Holt, the Secretary of War, is also relevant to uh, this notion about whether they knew about this planned insurrection to try to prevent the inauguration of Lincoln. And, and really, February 13th, the date that we were talking about, is that's the equivalent of January 6th. That's when they were, were going to count the electoral votes. Um, and so- did that time around, because the Capitol held, you see, that time around, because the president did his duty at the end of the day, which Donald J. Trump did not. Oh, oh, wait for it. The Confederate flag never made its way into the Capitol building in the first insurrection or the second for that matter. Mm-hmm. But it did on that dark day. And Andy, you and I were together that day. Did, weren't we yes. recording our first podcast, yes, our first podcast. In, this, in this house yes. um, on, on that very day? Correct. And I was tearing up when I saw all this. I was just so sad, you know, just as an American to watch this unfold. It was... It was such a disgraceful, you know, contemptible spectacle. And we have to ask, and I didn't know all the facts about the plot that uh, culminated in the scenes that I was watching on television. And we've had a lot of fact-finding since then. Correct. Speaking of fact-finding, in the, in the uh, brief, 
There's a lot of documentation. So we talked about, well, they knew about this attempt to prevent Lincoln's inauguration. Well, for it to be truly significant in our, to our argument, they would have to have known about it ahead of time. And they, in fact, on February 1st, you have a quote from a representative, preparations are actually threatened to take possession of this capital and prevent the inauguration of the presidential elect. That's on the floor of the House. And there's more, more that goes on. You can read it in the brief. And then later afterwards, Holt himself, the Secretary of War, is quoted, men occupying the highest positions in the public service who with the responsibilities of an oath to support the Constitution still resting upon their consciences did not hesitate secretly to plan and openly to labor for the dismemberment of the Republic. Men in high political positions were known to have intimate affiliations with the revolution, if indeed they did not hold its reins in their hands, to the effect that Mr. Lincoln would not or should not be inaugurated at Washington. And that's afterwards. So lots of quotes. And then you talked about also the fact that Floyd is held up as a, you know, an archetype. And then you have quote after quote, this is in a footnote, but just to give you one example, Senator Trumbull says, if a traitor in arms against the government, Floyd of Virginia, for instance, were appointed, uh, does the senator hold that we should be bound to receive him as a member? And then there's quote after quote like that where Floyd is is given as the example. Again, the Benedict Arnold of his day, synonym for treachery and treason. Now, so. um, we'll talk more, Andy, in the next episode about the, the team. The team came found all these quotes. Now, it is true that I think I knew where to look and what to look for. And we found exactly what we were looking for in just the places we were looking for it because we're right about these things. And when you're right, you tend to find more and more and more evidence. Like more, the more we look, the more people we find saying the president is an officer and we find virtually no one saying the president is not an officer within the meaning of section three of the 14th amendment. Still haven't, uh, the folks on the other side haven't found one person who says that squarely. The president is not an officer within the meaning of section three of the 14th amendment because it's such an outlandish and preposterous position. And I defy today my friends on the other side to produce that kind of quote uh, with any kind of clarity and specificity, not saying the president is an officer for some purposes. I, I, you know, myself have said, oh, all officers are commissioned and the president, you see, doesn't have a commission. So, so you can find a quote out of context. You can. It's not a hard thing to do. That's not what I'm claiming. I'm claiming no one says, oh, section three somehow doesn't apply to the president. And here's why. Floyd, were he alive, can't be secretary of state can't be Secretary of Defense, what they call Secretary of War, but somehow can be President of the United States. Find me someone who says that, one. And even if you found one, we could find you dozens on the other side, not one or two, dozens, okay? So the team, I, I think I told them, look, the guy was a Benedict Arnold, I'm quite sure of that. You can, you can, you know, you'll, you'll find it. And they did find it, but oh, this was the team that found it. We're going to give them big shout outs by name, I think, Andy, in the mm -hmm. next episode. I want to itemize uh, some of their contributions. One of the key members of the team is clerking for two Republican appointed judges. I think oh, the, another one for one Democrat appointee and one Republican appointee. And the third, I think um, two Democrats, maybe only one Democrat and one Republican. I, I just haven't triple checked that. Great stuff. 
Just to clarify that, Akil, I think when you say is clerking, I think you mean will be clerking. Yes. They're yes, currently these are law th students. You know, right, yes. right. These are, Maybe these they've are third year been law accepted students. for these clerkships. Okay, so that's the story of John B. Floyd, and there's more, plenty more to come in the brief, more stories. We've got another character that's about to come to the fore, and maybe sort of a half-villain we've got to talk about as well. Yeah, no, I wouldn't call him, if we're talking about Salmon P. Chase, I wouldn't yes. call him a half-villain. I'd call him oh. a little disappointing, because that's yeah. what ambition will do for you, okay. but but one of the great, great abolitionist heroes of all time. But unfortunately, he got bit by the presidential bug. And the only cure for that, very, at a very early age in life, and the only cure for that, they don't have Paxlovid quite. You know, If you've been bitten by the presidential bug, the only cure is death. Um, and so even when he's actually on the Supreme Court, he's still kind of angling for the presidency. And oh, yes, there is an interesting backstory here. Because the two greatest Lincoln men, okay, because Lincoln's assassinated, not by John Wilkes, but by John Wilkes Booth. Andrew Johnson isn't really Lincoln's man. He has to be on the ticket for various reasons in 1864, but the two great successors, and Seward it maybe is a Lincoln man, but he uh, himself is a, is a victim in this assassination plot, and so physically he's kind of a wreck after Ford's theater. So the two great Lincoln men after Ford's theater who are really on the scene are Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase, whom he puts on the Supreme Court as Chief Justice, and the general that he finds, you know, from reaching way down to the system, Ulysses S. Grant, after Fort Donaldson, you know, who will become commanding general and then acting Secretary of War and then a two-term president. So these are the two great Lincoln men after Lincoln Falls. Salmon P. Chase, and Ulysses S. Grant, and they have different views about whether Section 3 is a good idea or not. Grant thinks it is. Some P. Chase thinks it isn't. And they have different ideas about how it should be enforced. Grant enforces it vigorously and self-executingly without waiting for any congressional statute, and Chase is all over the map. These are two men who both wanted to be president in 1868, and one of them won over the other, Grant actually prevails. Chase doesn't even get a major party nomination. And the American people, in my view, chose wisely. They chose the, the better person. So yes, in part two of our story of the brief, we'll say more about these. And it matters whether actually you're with Grant, whether you think Grant is the truer embodiment of the 14th Amendment, Section 3's vision and Lincoln's vision, or Chase. And they've given you actually at least two, maybe three reasons for picking Grant, because they have different views. And I'm saying, here's one that the American people picked Grant. Here's another one. Grant, from the beginning, was in favor of 14.3, and Chase, from the beginning, wasn't. And the third is, yeah, I do think Chase lets his ambition completely overwhelm him toward the end of his life. And I think, you know, a couple of things that I would like to make clear, you know, outside of your story, you use the word novelistic, but this is nonfiction. Right. Okay. By no, by no means are you making things up. As Not as at all. Story. No, no, no. I'm I'm talking about characters and choices, and you know our audience has heard, for example, why I have great respect for George Washington and Alexander Hamilton. And it's not novelistic, it's because, but I am interested in 
persons and character. Nowhere is character more important than in the presency because it's one person 24 7 365 as our audience has heard me emphasize time and again and the other thing i would say is yes you have the story the american people pick grant over chase and yes they had different opinions on 14 3 but aside from all that you don't think it's close on the law regarding the self-executing nature I don't, but but one of my reasons for that is the gloss, the liquidation, the settlement, the early implementation of Section 3. And just as I pay particular attention to how Washington understood the Constitution when he administers it on things like the decision of 1789, so I'm going to pay particular attention to the early implementation. And in this case, especially the only implementation by someone who is supportive of it, Ulysses Grant. And who is Grant? He's the reincarnation. He's a Lincoln man, yes, but he's also, in a sense, the first reincarnation of George Washington, a two-term president above party. He could have uh, won the nomination on either side. Washington is pre-political party. And the the next incarnation will be named Dwight Eisenhower, who, again, supreme commander of all American forces, who could have won as a Republican or a Democrat in the 1950s. Right. There's, there's Andrew Jackson, but he's not above party. So right. he's not the same kind of figure. Right. right. Okay. So can't wait for that. So we'll be back next week. Thank you.